0: In this episode, Kirsten Archer, CFO at Bamboom Cloud describes how to challenge the mainstream view of a university first finance career. She emphasizes the importance of finance challenging the status quo. And she also underlines why technology allows her to scale Bamboom Cloud without the need to hire a huge finance team. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey we want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. So Kirsten, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's
1: great to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So, Kristen, I'd love to start off uh, by understanding how you uh, arrived at your current position as CFO. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about your career path uh, towards that?
1: Yeah, of course. I sort of followed the traditional route, but in a kind of parallel way to a lot of people. I left school at 18, not really knowing what to do, as a lot of people do, sort of um and in between university or going into work. I had a... Um, a a close family bereavement. So my father passed away when I was 18, when I was going to be going to university. So that kind of spun me on a completely different path. And I ended up working full time at the entertainment complex that I was waitressing at when I was doing my A-levels, kind of worked there full time. They asked me to do their payroll administration. I then started to do their accounts administration. And I got into accountancy that way around. So it was never really deliberate. I think that's a common theme with us accountants, that There are many of us that kind of fall into accountancy rather than make it a deliberate move. I went traveling, went to Australia for a year. And when I was there, because I hadn't been to university, I didn't really know what sort of big businesses and stuff like that there were. I was doing various sort of admin jobs locally. When I was there, I I got a three-month position at PwC. They were moving offices from the CBD down to the river. And my role there was making their new security passes. So there I was, sat there making security passes, putting people's names and and photos onto their passes. And I thought, this seems like a really cool place to work. When I get back to the UK, I'm going to go and work for PwC. Very young and very naive at the time. When I went back to, to the UK, I got a job in London as an accounts administrator. It was a temporary job. But whilst I was there, PwC were advertising for assistant accountants. So I applied, got the job and was very fortunate to start my career at PwC. I guess the equivalent now would be kind of their school leavers programme, but I was a little bit before that. I worked in accounts preparation. So where larger organisations come across to the UK, they don't want a, a small finance team there. They'd outsource it. So we were part of their outsource finance function until they grew big enough to get their own finance team. So I was there for five years. In the last year, I moved across to consulting, but being quite junior in my career, I loved consulting. I loved the variety it gave me, but I did feel a little bit of a fraud because I felt like I should know more than what I actually knew. So decided at that point to go into industry. So I then went and became a financial accountant for a, a small company with a US parent. I followed that trend for a few years. So ended up then moving to the East Midlands, worked for Boots, who'd just been taken over by Walgreens Alliance, had a financial accounting role there um, then moved across to a company called TDX Group in Nottingham, had just been bought out by Equifax, so another big American company and kind of moved into a commercial finance um, function from there. I didn't just do the the kind of traditional finance role either. I, I spent a year working as a pricing manager, which I think was really valuable to my career because it definitely gave me a lot more commercial acumen and a lot more commercial skills. And then I joined an accountancy practice who wanted to set up a commercial finance function, Helped them set that up. And then as part of that journey, moved across into the IT division, which is where I now find myself as part of Bamboom Cloud following an MBO as their CFO. So it's been a, a little bit of a non-traditional way to find yourself in a CFO position. And I wouldn't say it's been a deliberate move either. It's kind of where I've found myself rather than being a deliberate aspiration to climb to the steady heights of CFO. Sometimes I sit there and think, how how am I here? <laughs> Someone's going to find me out. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's, it's great. In my position now, I've definitely garnered the the benefit of having worked in quite a few different finance roles over the last sort of 20 years. And um, it's definitely given me a steady background in, you know, the trials and tribulations of finance, you know, we're often the scapegoat of the organization. But should also be a big driving factor in the commercial success of an organisation. So, yeah, it's been an interesting journey.
0: And I can see also from your profile, although you didn't go to university initially, you ended up doing a university degree in, in finance and accountancy. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did. I did it through Open University. Decided that actually there wasn't much point in me actually going to university. The Open University gave me that business background. So I worked part time and studied part time for sort of, I think it took five years, Gave me some exemptions from my ACCA, which I then finished when I was at PWC. So yeah, got to the same end result, just took a little bit longer to get there, but potentially a little bit less expensive.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting with the Open University, it's, it's a fantastic institution and it, it, it really democratises the ability to access higher education. But of course, it is a really long-term commitment and often very intense whilst doing it because you're working and have responsibilities that often full-time students don't have.
1: Absolutely. And you get people from all sorts of walks of life as well, working parents, trying to manage that and balance that. The benefit for me of that in my career personally was because I had to balance that early on in my career. It meant when I came to do my professional qualification, actually, it wasn't that onerous for me. I was already used to kind of sacrificing weekends and and evenings when I had to in order to study, which is, you know, pros and cons with it. But yeah, I'm a big advocate of Open University. If I was going to take my career path again now, as some of my team have done over the years, going in and getting work experience at sort of the age of 18 and getting on some of the apprenticeships and some of the training programs that big companies do, I think is incredible. You can be qualified as an accountant at the age of 21 in the UK. You know, if you can get that under your belt, you know, you're still young enough to go off and take a gap year traveling and, you know, you're setting yourself up really well. So there are potentially more routes and it is a more positively seen thing to do that now than it necessarily was when I did it, which was kind of a, you finish your A-levels, you go to university, that's kind of prescribed to you. I think that's absolutely advantageous. And not everybody wants to go to university and get lumbered with tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt every year. I mean, I'm sure it's great fun, but there's lots of other ways you can have lots of great fun as well. That's why I'm such an advocate of kickstart and the apprenticeship schemes, because it gives people from different walks of life opportunity to better themselves and get that first step on the career ladder which is massively important
0: and if you were speaking to someone say that at that end of their career and let's just say that they had the ability to go to university what advice would you give to them about whether they should go because there's a big move in certain uh, circles, especially even in parts of Silicon Valley, where they're saying that the degrees are set up almost for a different era and that actually the value that it brings is is little compared to actually going into the world of work, starting your own business from an early age. So do you subscribe to that type of thinking or would you have a, a more nuanced uh, piece of advice for that type of person?
1: It depends on the person and what you want to get out from university. You know, if you, you want to go and build that social circle, maybe get access to different paths then you know university is a great way of doing that until you get to university you don't even realize how many jobs there are within the business world I think if you are somebody who knows that they want to work in say finance then actually like what is the point of going to university why are you going there I think one of the interesting things that that I see is especially when young people come into the world of work they can be incredibly highly academic intelligent young people but don't have work skills So don't have those skills in terms of communication or writing emails or just logic and problem solving and circling around to speak to people. There are a lot of skills that you don't get until you come into the world of work. I think the the world has moved on. I think, you know, that, that entrepreneurial spirit, you are probably going to get more from the world of work and learning from peers and seeing the good side and the bad side of what they do then you are necessarily sitting in a lecture hall listening to somebody who, you know, is incredibly qualified in what they do, but hasn't necessarily been in that work environment either ever or for a very long time. Knowing that you've got options should be really empowering to young people now because it's something that I didn't have when I was at school.
0: We're jumping ahead a little bit, but... I'd thinking about exactly about building your team, it's so common for us to have CFOs on here that of course have followed the more conventional route of going to university and then often starting an advisory and then moving into industry uh, and becoming CFO. There's a big push for diversity on all fronts, whether it's race or gender or various other uh, ways to measure it. But the other part that's really spoken about is a diversity of path into finance and into their teams. So not going through higher education and as you said, going for apprenticeships and so on. So has that shaped you and your own experience shaped the way that you hire into your team? So not just going for that higher education candidate that's so easy to find compared to the further education one.
1: Yeah, I think it absolutely has, especially when I'm recruiting in for junior roles. It's got nothing to do with the person's academic acumen either, actually. It's got more to do with the person, their values, whether they're going to fit into my team because I'm experienced enough and, and the team around me are experienced enough that we can coach somebody and we can help somebody with whether it be, you know, a billing role or a, a purchase ledger role. So actually that person, that gumption, that desire and want to be their best is more important to me than what academic background they've got. Clearly, there's a base level of kind of academic standard that I would expect. But I've got um, uh, someone working for me at the moment who he never did his A-levels. He, he spent... Um, Years working in making cans, so actually making like coke cans, <laughs> but then decided that actually he was bored, senseless, and he wanted to go and choose something completely different to do. So went through university himself, self-funded in his thirties, and and went down and became an accountant much later on. And you know, he's finishing off his career now. So yeah, I don't recruit with that in mind in terms of you need to have a first in accounting and stuff like that. That person fit for me, and that tenacity and that resilience. Is is equally as important. Finance can be a tough place to work at times. You know, you get the business looking at you, suppliers, customers, you know, it, it can be a tough environment to work in. We need people around us who we can rely on as team members and who have that tenacity, but that drive and that desire to want to do their best in their role. You know, finance can sometimes be boring. Processing invoices can sometimes be really boring. You know, you don't want everybody all the time to want my job. <laughs> I don't necessarily want a team that everybody wants to be CFO. I want a good, well-rounded team where, yeah, some people are, are knocking down at my door wanting, wanting my job after me, but other people want to do the best they are in the job that they've got because they have family outside of work or they have loved ones that they're caring for, or actually they just don't want the stress and the hassle of a high-powered job because they want to finish on time and you know go and play football. like. We are many different sorts of people, and and I think a well-balanced team and a well-balanced company should support that, definitely.
0: And I can see the, the value of not just prioritizing academics or the CV and actually trying to measure the quality and the attributes of the person in front of you. I don't know about you, but I've certainly been guilty of when you're busy and you're trying to hire for lots of roles and you're looking at lots of CVs and lots of candidates and you're trying to perhaps guide your recruiting team, you say, okay, look for, this is the type of profile, this is the role, this is the type of profile I'm looking for. Typically, I would look for people who have been successful in this context, which might be a university or might be even in a certain type of company. And you can see how that bias comes in because you're just looking for a quick way to cut the very noisy market down into a few highly qualified candidates. And so I can think now about how guilty I've been at just doing exactly what you said, which is look at the CV and be guilty of seeing what's in paper. How do you avoid that? In order to uh, take your approach, you need to look at lots of different candidates. It's hard to filter up front. And then you need to really qualify quite nuanced things, like, as you said, their desire and their values in an interview. So what's in your approach that helps you to do that?
1: I don't write job adverts in a standard way. My job adverts aren't boring. If you read them, they don't sound like a traditional accountancy job advert. And I think that's really important. With the company that we are, that's massively important because you kind of need to get our sense of humour and our values. And if you do, you're going to fly. And if you look at it and go, actually, I'm not sure about that, then it's probably not the place for you. So somebody, for me, when I'm getting a lot of applicants through, somebody who's taken the time to read the job advert and written a cover letter related to it, referring to that, regardless of their name or age or where they live, they're the people that I'm going to be interested in. not the people who you know are firing off a million CVs to a million different applications and vacancies. That's how we differentiate ourselves and that's how we attract the right people and are successful with our recruitment because of that because we take the time to invest in those job adverts. I don't want vanilla you know gray suited accountants working with me. That's not what we're about as an organization. they wouldn't fit in you need to share our values. And that that is really important. So that's kind of one way that that we would do it. We have a very good recruitment screening guy as well, who does a lot of um, the initial conversations around the values and stuff, really gets who we are. Um, Because that cultural fit is massively important. I think we've probably all worked in organisations whereby, actually, what they do is great. And we've probably been remunerated well, But that cultural fit isn't right. And if that cultural fit isn't right, then you get demotivated and you don't do your best. And eventually you get bored and you leave. So finding that right cultural fit from the off and spending the time doing that is, is massively important
0: and what about actually when you get those, those candidates in front of you in an interview the thing that again that i've often seen uh, me and, and teams i've been involved in get wrong is that you can hire the people who are great at interviews rather than the people who might be great at the job i don't know that that's something that you've come across too
1: i don't think there's anybody who could say that they've 100 recruited 100 successfully the whole time because of that exact point. And it's the same as the old exams, isn't it? Like I've worked with some accountants over the years who are absolutely amazing at their jobs but are rubbish at exams and have failed their exams. Equally, I've worked with people who've smashed their exams but don't make great accountants. There's always a risk that you get that higher wrong. I think getting that interview process and getting them interviewed. I think it happens more at a junior level than it does at a more senior level. I think at a senior level, the way they talk about their career and what they've done and their their achievements and successes, I think you can tell if somebody can do the job or not. Therefore, it becomes more about the person fit into the team. I think at the more junior level, it's trying to set them up for success in the first place. Young people that come in haven't necessarily had a job in an office environment before, let alone a finance function, and actually setting them up with the right training and setting them up for success is important but not everybody is going to succeed in that role and i think making a quick decision around that is equally as important you know if you have got the wrong fit person in the team and it could be that they're a great person but they're just not the right person for the role vice versa then actually making that decision and finding either another role internally that's better suited to them or letting them leave and find their own career path is important i think The damage done to to teams by keeping underperformers in place for long periods of time, I I think, is is worse than facing it head on and admitting that sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes we get recruitment wrong. I know that I have in the past. You have to sometimes go with your gut. (laughs) You sometimes have to go with the best person that's sat in front of you, hope they'll fit in and be great for the job, and then, unfortunately, you have to deal with the consequences if, if they don't quite meet expectations. That happens rarely, though. I mean, it's not happened many times in in my career that we've had to do that. But it has happened. Like, you don't know 100% of a person after an hour's interview with them, do you? So, yeah, people are very different as well. We are also very unique that actually somebody who could be unsuccessful in my organisation could well go on into a finance function somewhere else and finance team somewhere else and be massively successful. Again, it's sometimes a bit down to the culture we're a very fast-paced, very fast-moving organisation. That doesn't suit everybody. That ambiguity in decision-making doesn't suit some people, whereas other people thrive off it because there's always something new and new hurdles to overcome. But that's then finding the right person, I think. And again, back to that culture piece.
0: And so that I find that point around fast-paced really interesting because Again, time and time again, our um, guests have, have spoken about building a business case rather than on potential revenue or saved costs. It's actually on saved time. There was one guest on that said, like, I'll be interested in any type of tool or technology that allows us to move faster. Uh, and he was speaking specifically about the finance team and of course the faster the finance team can move especially if you're providing insights and advice to the rest of the company the faster the company moves and and typically in today's world that's a good thing as you describe your team as a fast-paced organization what are the types of things that that your team and your finance function does that's fast-paced that perhaps might differ from from elsewhere
1: we kind of are our own customers in what we do. So our very product offering is providing Microsoft technology to SMBs. We are an SMB, so we are our own client and the finance element of Dynamics is our niche. And what that means is that I I can be quite challenging as a stakeholder because I want the new stuff first. So when we're developing stuff, I want the new stuff first. I'm also quite demanding in terms of what other third parties are doing. So, you know, looking at some of the pain points in my team, I find the whole constant data entry just such a waste of time. It's not value add. So leveraging technology like Document Capture, the same invoices that you get through every month, Document Capture posts that for you automatically. That means that my purchase ledger person can look at commercial terms and things like that rather than having to to post data entry and stuff like that. So that's massively important. Things like billing, billing for us is is a massively time-consuming process and can be quite manual. So one of the things that we're doing at the moment is looking at how we um, take a flat file export from some of our suppliers, import that in, and it will post both the, the billing and the purchase ledger side automatically. So the human's role becomes actually it's a check. It's a check and it's adding that value piece to it. I don't see why any of us want to do something that technology can do for us. We get a bit worried about, you know, the robot revolution. That will never happen because robots will never think in the same way as humans. They'll never spot those little intricacies and add that value. I don't want to grow a team that's enormous. I want technology to take away the heavy lifting so that my team can do the interesting stuff, the stuff that really benefits them in their career journeys. You know, I'm under no illusion that they're all going to like stay in my team forever. I want to be a breeding ground for... Great finance professionals into the future that go into their next companies and go. Why do you do things this way? We should implement this technology, and it would save us, you know, two days a month in in manual reconciliation and processing. So I think that's one of the benefits of working in in an organisation that focuses on SMB and and SMB tech is that we could be at the forefront of early adoption with it. You know, sometimes it works brilliantly, other times it doesn't work brilliantly, which can also um, cause some pain points. But it means that we constantly have to keep thinking out of the box in terms of innovation.
0: So does that mean then at Bamboom Cloud that you're actually designing or shaping and delivering finance solutions for finance teams in other SMBs?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, historically, kind of Microsoft products were available for big organizations because they had huge implementation fees charged on a day rate. We've disrupted that and taken those products and made them fixed fee, fixed scope. And so it means that smaller organizations can leverage Microsoft technology earlier on in their journey any finance leader and finance professional knows, moving finance systems is incredibly painful and is best avoided. (laughs) So by having something like Microsoft Dynamics in place from a fairly early stage means that you don't have to at another stage, then move on to another system because it grows with you as your business gets more complex. There will be a solution for it. If you're on some of the smaller, smaller solutions, you'll get to the stage whereby you know, they are brilliant, but you'll get to the stage whereby you're like, oh, I wish I could report in this way or I wish I could add a cost center here or I wish I could do this. That absolutely uh, enables us to kind of be innovative in that space and try and solve some of the problems that other small business owners like us are uh, suffer. You know, those things like working capital, reporting, all these sorts of things. We can innovate for ourselves. And equally take customer pain points and implement that back on ourselves as well, which is quite interesting sometimes.
0: That's a very interesting strategy for Microsoft as well, actually, because historically dynamics would have been for larger companies. But this this type of yep. approach opens up almost like a, a, a ground of leads and potential uh, lower, uh, like smaller sized companies that will grow into larger accounts within the Microsoft ecosystem, which is cool.
1: Absolutely. Um, and Microsoft are very supportive in what we do exactly because of that. So over a very short period of time, we've gone from being a UK-based company. I now have an entity in, in the US, which is doing really well. I have an entity in Canada and we've just set up in Germany because there is a big market for it. You know, Microsoft technology is fabulous. Having a CRM that links through to your finance system, then you've got all the advantages of Power Apps and Power Platform and you know, that good bit of reporting around stuff is really exciting to be able to move into that space and, of course, ha- has come with its challenges because, you know, it's not something that Microsoft has done previously. We are kind of disrupting um, the market a little bit with that. And, of course, that means that because we're the first ones doing it, we've got nobody to learn from. So we have to try and fail fast and then move on. And if something doesn't work, then, yeah, we need to move on and, and, and change direction with that. So, yeah, it's interesting. And of course, the having multiple companies in multiple territories with different cultures and people from a finance perspective is quite challenging at times. I have a centralised finance function, but I will always outsource payroll and tax compliance because it's too risky um, to bring in-house. And I absolutely need experts to rely on. I can't know everything. And I think the further up the organisation I've gone in my career, the more I've learned that it's okay that I say that. (laughs) I think when you're early on, you go, oh, I don't know the answer to that. I'll have to go and find it out. Whereas now I'm quite happy to say, yeah, I've got no idea what the corporation tax rules are in Germany. We're going to need a German accountant for that.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I wanted to come on to that point, actually, where you talk about outsource versus in-house, because, of course, that was something that you Mm -hmm. touched on earlier on. So you mentioned payroll and tax is something you always outsource, especially for international, uh, like, domains because that makes sense we've spoken with previous guests and some of course are take the traditional route of of building everything in-house and having almost like a small army and then others actually there was one guest who tried to outsource everything the default was outsource and use vendors use technology how do you approach that that question of outsource versus in-house when it comes to finance
1: yeah so i think using that technology piece is massively important i think in terms of the core finance team. They they are within the UK and they are within the UK headquarters. And I think that's important. If I was to outsource everything, I haven't done it, so I don't know, but I would fear that I would be spending a lot of time explaining my business to the outsource parties who didn't necessarily get what we were trying to do or get the speed of things at which we were trying to do. I guess it depends on your business and how complex you are. I think in finance, I mean, one of the reasons that that I love finance and the reason that I stay in finance is because. It is the only function that you get to see the entire end-to-end of the organization from product creation through defining of the statutory accounts. But there isn't another function that, that enables you to see that. So though, those conversations that happen when you're in the office and somebody says, oh, Kesslyn, I must talk to you about this thing, or you overhear something go go, they haven't thought about this from a finance perspective, I should probably ask a question. I think that's really important for finance to be there. I think as the organisation grows, I think there will absolutely be a need to get finance resource in place with, within the kind of the regions, because of the time difference, because of the language, and because of some of the cultural differences. I think we'll end up with kind of a, a core finance team in the UK, but with finance resource within each of the territories, but still keep that the technical side of things, the, the bits that like, I'm never going to know, keep that outsourced, but then continue to leverage technology. So anything that we do and anything that we adopt is a global adoption. I don't want disparate systems throughout the different territories. We should be following one global process and just adapt it for nuances, local nuances as we need to. So that's important. But we're at the early stage of our growth. I I may well change my mind in 12 months time. (laughs) That's the thing. You have to be able to adapt, don't you? You have to be able to agile move. And if someone, a vendor comes to me with an amazing solution that is outsource everything, then then I'm
0: all ears. And you're clearly someone who is, is passionate about technology, and I think it probably goes not just to the fact that it's core to your business, but it's also something that you personally see huge value in. So what are the, the areas that you see huge opportunity with technology to improve the way that finance works um, within um, Bamboom Cloud? And then to use your phrase as well, to eliminate all that waste of time of data entry and, and admin and so on that, that is, I guess, wasting the potential of your team?
1: It still astounds me, like today in 2022, that the world's global finance system is pretty much still held up by Excel. (laughs) There is no finance function on earth that does not have an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. (laughs) I think that's symptomatic of the fact that actually as finance people, we don't challenge the status quo enough sometimes. I think that sometimes... Because we have month-end reporting and because we have to make sure that what we do gets done, we go, I'd love to fix that, but I haven't got time and I need this to carry on working. It will do the job. And I think sometimes we need to be bigger advocates of the fact that this doesn't work for us. So what one of the things that I've not seen a great solution yet is an integrated HR and finance system. So the fact that you know your payroll doesn't automatically link through to, to post your payroll journals, to me seems silly. And I suspect there are probably clever people out there thinking about it in in the background around it. But there is so much stuff that we do in finance that technology should be able to do with us. Our businesses may change, but on a month to month, our numbers don't change. You know, that's one of the things that finance professionals, we want to make sure is that our numbers follow the trend that we're expecting and we don't end up with anomalies, which means that most of what we do is repetitive. The month-end close cycle for most businesses should be repetitive. So that means that if that's the case, we should be able to use and leverage technology to reduce the time it takes to close and take away the errors that come from manual processing. We are looking at technology to to resolve this, but one of my team has to spend the best part of a week at the moment data inputting 1,300 lines worth of CSP licenses. Now, He isn't going to get that right every single time because it's mind numbing and there's a lot of data to do. I mean, that's just me and my organization. I suspect if we looked across lots of different organizations, there are all those types of kind of manual processes that technology should be able to do. I think sometimes you don't know what you don't know as well. So I know we find that within our client base quite a lot, you know, having those conversations around, you know, what process is your biggest time consuming one of our clients had to close their business for, for a few days to do a stock take because they were doing it on Excel and manual tick sheets. So we built them um, a power app whereby the team could come in and do it on an app and they had to, they would, they were down for a, for a couple of hours rather than two days. That has a massive difference on the function of the business. And it's things like that. It's anything that takes too long, there must be a better way of doing it. And guaranteed technology will be able to do it. And if you can't find what it is, There will be something out there that will help you, even if it's not necessarily in the way that you think it will. I mean, power apps are going to change the way that we do everything. There are ways that you can use technology to speed every process up, every operational process. And and the more that we do that, the more that you're not relying on humans and and, and human fallibility and, and errors with that. As finance people, there's nothing more frustrating than being like, oh, someone forgot to do this or you posted something the wrong way around. Or, you know, if we can remove that and get people doing what they should be doing, which is controls, checks, analysis, the data and the insight side of things, then we'll all be better for it.
0: Unquestionably. And and what's interesting as well is that there's there's a proliferation of new tools and technologies that are coming in to play f- across so many different categories across finance that, um, in a way that sales and marketing arguably had 5, 10, 15 years ago. And, and now I think it's getting to that g part of the business. And so what's interesting about what you're doing, in particular for your clients, is you're building everything around that singular Microsoft ecosystem, which is so powerful because you have the integration and you have typically one platform that is united. But of course, then there's often a debate, do you go best of breed or do you go for singular platform? And is that something that, again, you tussle with as you think about the tools that you either want to buy or even build because your team builds those types of solutions?
1: When we're looking at externals, there's obviously a big part of the Microsoft partners, which is um, those third-party apps. And there is a lot of innovation that happens within those third-party apps. And there are third-party apps, as you say, that do exactly the same thing as well. So for me, I, as a finance leader, am often led by my team, by the ones doing the job. I'm not the one that sits there and does expense processing. This isn't my decision to make. I want to know what the commercials are and how much time it's going to save us to work out whether it makes sense to go around or not. But for me, the decision-making power is in the team. And you know, if they think that one app is better than another then that's the way that we go down. I think there needs to be competition within this space. Otherwise, you end up with just Excel again, just a newer version of Excel that everybody relies on. There needs to be competition. A single source is great and Microsoft enables that, but there has to be competition within the partners in terms of who's going to get to market first. From a document capture, from a purchase edge perspective, we're currently talking to the two providers that provide very similar but equally quite different things. And that's massively important. A a world without competition is a world without innovation. So it's massively important that that continues. And we, within our client base and within what we use, will always use what's best for us. And our recommendations will often be based on what we use, but clients may choose something else because they might like a user interface better, or there may be an API in a back end of something else that links in better with another part of their technology or their system. So you end up with a hybrid suite of technology that works best for you. I think the the important bit is that the data flows accurately and well across them all. I think that's where as, as finance leaders and as finance professionals, that's the key to it all, is getting that single source of data from start to finish. So you can track it and you can report on it and that it doesn't stop at the end of a system and then have to get put into another system. Having that that data fluidity, I mean, that's what we're all aspiring to, I think.
0: The, the holy grail.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The <laughs> holy grail. It's one of those aspirations that there's many teams and companies have made huge strides towards, but of course, there's just a long way to go. And I think also, because it's not as if it's a static problem either, because the proliferation of potential sources of data is also increasing the complexity of that over time. So it is something, one of those things that, it seems like you teams and companies will constantly work on to improve.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we are a small business and our clients are small businesses. You've got enormous organisations that have entire teams dedicated to this. So, you know, little old us is we're going to be on the back foot with this stuff. Data cleansing and, and that good stuff. And getting technology that has open APIs is really important because it enables you to leverage further technology. So even if your technology doesn't talk to each other, then at least getting like technology that enables you to put things like power platform in place and power BI in place. So therefore you can take multiple data from different sources, but it will tell you a story rather than you having to do lots of data manipulation on top. That's kind of the first step on the journey, definitely. And is something that I am a big advocate of. The, the power of that data and then the visualization off of it is really important. I think
0: that point on visualization comes up time and time again. If you've got those insights and ideally real-time insights, they can increase the influence of finance within the company uh, when they're advising a, presumably all of your partners from different divisions, uh, in, like whether it's from sales to marketing to even then to product. And Again, that's something that we see. With that in mind, um, Kirsten, as we, we draw the interview to a close, you're obviously in your, your first role as CFO. And listening, there could be, of course, some of your peers who are CFOs, but then other, there might be others who are looking to emulate you uh, and, and one day become CFO. What advice would you give them, especially now that you're you know three years into this role, so that they could be ready and successful when the time comes?
1: I think there's probably a couple of pieces. I would say don't rush getting to CFO role. Like some people seem to be very desperate to get to the top of the ladder. And actually it will come if it's right to come to you. Like the right opportunity will come up. I had an opportunity a few years ago and I I wasn't successful in it. But now I look back and with hindsight, that wouldn't have been the right organisation or the right culture for me to have taken my first FD slash CFO role in that wasn't the right time or the right place for me. I think getting a a breadth of experience in the business is also very valuable. I learned a lot from spending time in pricing, especially working very closely with the sales teams as part of the sales team, structuring deals, looking at commercial contracts, negotiating with customers. I, I learned a lot from that. You don't always have to take a step up. You can take a sideways move to a different part of finance or out of finance in the same organisation. And you can learn so much, especially if you're like me and you've always been in finance, you know, stepping into another part of the business's shoes and seeing it from their point of view can be really valuable. It's fun being CFO. There are lots of different routes to, to get here. And at times it, it can be pretty stressful <laughs> as well. You know, it's, it can be lonely. as CFO, it can be lonely. You're often, especially in entrepreneurial businesses, you're often uh, seen as the negative one because you bring balance, that risk balance to the table. You know, are are the numbers going to go round? Can we afford it? So, you know, that can sometimes feel quite lonely. And having spent 20 years in finance and gone through the the business partnering side of things and the relationship building with different stakeholders and different organisations has meant that now I can kind of Position things in a way which means that I know I can get the best out of people, even though internally I might want to be like, that's such a bad idea. That's rubbish. Let's not do it. That's not going to get the best out of the situation. And I think I can do that and and have that relationship building because of the different roles that I've done in different organisations. For me, it's just about learning. If you're not learning in the role that you're in, then it's probably time to move on. It doesn't always have to be up the career ladder. It can be sideways or a similar role in a different organisation. You know, if you want to be a CFO of a fast-paced organization, spend some time in finance in a fast-paced organization. See how you like it because one day that's all going to be yours to look
0: after. <laughs> and I think that point on uh, the stress and the occasional loneliness of a CFO is exactly why like, we set up this podcast and also why what you've been sharing today has been so valuable. Kirsten, thank you for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. It's, be, it's been brilliant to hear your experiences and, and your advice for others.
1: Great to be here. Thanks, thanks as well, Ross. It's lovely to meet you.
0: One last thing. We want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.